Thought Guy. So your dad, did your dad ever say things like, why can't a leopard hide? Anybody know why can't a leopard hide? Because he's always spotted. <laughs> How do moths swim? They use the butterfly stroke. Oh. <laughs> what do you get from a pampered cow? Spoiled milk. Very close. Why are spiders so smart? This is a little modern. They can't. They can find everything on the web. <laughs> Two more. That's cute. I like this. One. Which is faster, hot or cold? Hot because you can catch a cold. Oh. One more. <laughs> Why are elevator jokes so good? They work on so many levels. Oh. Yeah. The groaner I say for last. So dad jokes. Are those an affliction of some sort or kind of a fond memory? All dads have some form of these kind of Silly jokes, I know mine did. He had lots of them all the time. But I was thinking, when I was thinking about my dad and thinking about the Father's Day and stuff, I, I, I remembered, do you remember the time when you realized that your father, or mother for that matter, but it's Father's Day, so we're gonna talk about fathers. When your father didn't know everything? You know, you always thought, for most of us at least, that your, your dad knew everything. But there was this moment, and sometimes it's early in life, sometimes it's, you know, six, seven years old, you know, once you start getting into school, and, and maybe even um, younger with the kids on the internet now, and they can, you know, gain uh, knowledge a little quicker. Um, it's an interesting moment when that happens, when you see the fallibility of this, this human being that... Uh, that you thought knew everything and, and was all powerful and all everything. And um, some of that fallibility in some of our lives with some of our fathers was very evident and, and was a lot in their lives. But we have to remember that dads have a past too. And that this, the seed of each and every one of us has a seed as well. And his beliefs have a history. Now, metaphysics has a history, too. Metaphysics was seeded by Parmenides. I didn't know this. I <laughs> thought there were uh, other people, but when I looked it up to double-checked my knowledge, I realized, or I found out that Par Parmenides was the guy who they believe is the father of metaphysics. He's the one who thought about the relationship between mind and matter and that it was all one thing. So that was quite a long time ago. He said, we can speak and think only what exists. And what exists is uncreated and imperishable, for it is whole and unchanging and complete. So now he's kind of talking about everything. There's no real time. You know, time is a man-made thing. Everything is happening all at once, past, present, and future. He goes on to say, it was not or nor shall be different since it is now all at once, one, and continuous. Now, 
Plato and Aristotle and all those guys followed him, and a lot of them called a lot of people called them the father of metaphysics, but he was. Now the father of Buddhism, of course, is is Buddha, or the gentleman who became the Buddha, and he fathered the four noble truths. And he said, We are shaped by our thoughts, we become what we think. When the mind is pure, joy follows like a shadow that never leaves. Buddha said that, friends. We are shaped by our thoughts. We become what we think. Now, the seeds of new thought, as um, you heard a few weeks ago, um, was from Ralph Waldo Emerson. He said this, to be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. He was kind of the father of new thought. Um, you can go back to the Greeks, you can, you can go to uh, other philosophers around that time, but um, in general we consider him the father of new thought. Um, the father of mental healing is Phineas Quimby, and I've spoken about Phineas Quimby before. He, um, he, he took um, what was called mesmerism, uh, what's now hypnotism, and he did mental healing, and eventually he got rid of the mesmerism, realizing that it is our thoughts that bring disease into our lives. Now, he was dealing with the physical, but that's true in, in all parts of our lives. Thoughts are things. Now, we think thoughts are things is something that was written probably in the 70s or 80s. Um, actually not. Um, the first time, the first, they, they happened around the same time, a gentleman named Prentice Mulford, and um, a guy, James Allen, most of you might have read some James Allen, they're the ones who first said and were the fathers of the thoughts are things idea, which is what our philosophy lives by. The father of practical Christianity was Charles Fillmore, who along with his wife Myrtle, and we talked about her on Mother's Day, um, began the Unity uh, uh, Centers. A Science of Mind, of course, was fathered by Ernest Holmes. And I found a, something that I'd never seen before. Somebody asked him about the doctrine of divine love and the fatherhood and motherhood of God. And he said this, religious science teaches that there is one universal self-conscious or spirit, which we call God, that there is a universal reaction to that spiritual consciousness, which is the law of mind and action, and that there is a universal manifestation the result of the action of spirit through law, which universal manifestation is called creation. To each individual, this universal spirit, which is the parent mind, is father of all, or is the seed of all. And being personified through the individual, each and every one of us, must through his own or her own nature be immediately accessible to him or her. So he's saying, well, there's no real gender, but in, in the idea that there is a seed, and the seed is first cause, and first cause is another word for God or divine intelligence or whatever you want to call that presence of spirit, that seed goes through a law which we call creation, which is actually the mother idea. So he was talking about that. Well, the list goes on about who's the fathering of this and the fathers of that and fatherhood. But during Rediscovery Month, I wanted to tell you about a man this week. I want to tell you about a man. Though he fathered two daughters, they were Elizabeth and Eliza. Um, 
could you call Eli Elizabeth Eliza? I can't call her Beth, I guess, since one was Eliza. Uh, <laughs> there was another idea he seeded. His name was John Newton. Recognize that word, that name? Okay, some of you recognize the John Newton. John Newton was born in 1725. He was nurtured by a Christian mother who taught him Bible. At seven, though, his mother died of tuberculosis, and he was raised then by his stern sea captain father. By the age of 11, uh, John Newton went on his first of six sea voyages with his father. 11 years old, he's going on a sea voyage in the early 1700s. By 21, so 10 years later, he was forcibly enlisted aboard the HMS Harwich. So now he's with the Royal Navy at the time. He didn't like this. He didn't like this at all. He'd been living with sailors all his life. He was a sailor in all that that means. So, he rebelled against the discipline, of course, of the Royal Navy and deserted. And he was caught. He was put in irons. He was flogged, as they would do at the time. But eventually, he convinced them, because he was a charmer, he convinced them to put him on a slaver ship. Remember, we're in the mid-1700s mid right now. So, this is uh, one way that John Newton, in his writings, described himself as an arrogant and insubordinate person living with moral abandon. I sinned with a high hand and I made it my study to tempt and seduce others. No people like that? Uh, so he was 22 years old at that time doing all this. Those millennials. Anyway, so this slave ship that he was on was owned by a guy named Clow, who had a lemon plantation on an island off of West Africa. And they didn't particularly, Clow and his wife, who was an African woman, they didn't particularly like um, John or respect them and, or respect him, and they beat him. And they treated him horribly, and he ended up having to beg for food, and he was all in rags, and he just, he had to get out of there. So years later, after all this, he got himself transferred uh, to the service of a captain of the Liverpudlian ship called Greyhound. And on its homeward journey, the Greyhound was overtaken by an enormous storm. After thrashing about in the North Atlantic storm for over a week, now imagine you're in this ship of sails. You're not in a nice cruise ship folks, those who have been on a cruise ship, although that moves a little bit, but that has, that has uh, mechanics in it to make it not so horrible when the ship is being tossed about. They're in a sail ship in the middle of the 1700s in the North Atlantic, which is cold, 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 in a storm that has lasted over a week already. Its canvas sails were ripped. The wood on one side of the ship had been torn away and splintered. The sailors had little hope of survival, but they kept working those pumps. They kept pumping out that water, trying to keep the vessel afloat. They kept with the oars, those were on the oars. On the 11th day, Newton was just too exhausted to pump anymore. 
So they decided, well, we'll use him for something. So they tied him <laughs> to the helm. And he was the one, because he was tied to it, which he needed to be, because the storm was, it would have blown him away. So he's tied to keep the ship on course. <laughs> so he was on, he did this for 12 hours, oh having, you know, wind and rain and storm coming at him. He's tied, he's not going to go anywhere. He's tied to this thing, and he's just exhausted, but he can at least do this. Well, he had time to think those 12 hours, <clears throat> and he began to think and he realized what a, what a ruin his life had been and was, and what a wreck it was. Just like the battleship, so was his life. It was, it was just a wreck. He just went from worse to worse to worse, and, and his attitude and, and his being was just horrible as well, and he's, he's really realizing this. Since the age of 11, he's lived at sea, He's had this reputation for profanity, coarseness, and debauchery, and even the other sailors blushed with him and with his, their presence. So in this contemplation over these 12 hours of the wind and, and the rain coming at him, he's in the midst of a storm from the sea and a storm going on in his mind, in his soul, really, in his heart. Newton remembers one of his mother's teachings. And she taught him Proverbs 1, chapter 1, verse 24 through 31, and it goes something like this. Imagine, he's tired, he's ragged, he's tied to a, a wheel, um, he's trying to keep the, the, the boat going, going straight, the wind is coming at him, and he thinks in his head, because I have called and you refused have stretched out my hand, and you did not listen, have ignored all my counsel, and were not pleased with my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity, and will rejoice when terror and destruction overtakes you, when your fear shows up as desolation, and your destruction shows up as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then you shall call upon me, but I will not answer. You will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because you hated knowledge, would have none of my counsel, and despised all my reproof, you shall eat the fruit of your way and be filled with the fruit of your beliefs. Wow, what a mean, mean God there, huh? Mm -hmm. Let's look at this. Look at this in different way. Now, reproof, in case you didn't know, not a common word we use, means admonishment or answer. So, what, what it's saying in this quote is, um, we're not pleased with my reproof. You, you weren't pleased with, pleased with my answer. I gave you all the signals you needed. I told you, I revealed to you what was going on in your life that was not you know, centered in, in, in your divinity. And you didn't listen. So that's what it means by reproof there. Laugh and joy at calamity now. We don't really imagine um, uh, the divine or, or spirit laughing or, or rejoicing at our calamity because we don't believe that. We don't believe it works that way. But we do believe that this force, this source and substance of, of our supply in our lives um, is non-judgmental. The, the universe assumes 
through the law that we want and that we are enjoying whatever it is in our lives, whether it's the hip, whether it's the um, lousy life as a, as a sailor and, and as a person of non-repute, as you might, you might say. Um, the universe, or God, assumes you want that crap in your life. It's okay. No problem here. You want that? Here it is. You want to look at a bill and go, I don't know how the heck I'm going to pay it? You think those thoughts all the time? The universe is like, great. I love you. Is that what you want? Here you go. So it's not laughing as at us. It's laughing in a way with us because it assumes we're enjoying whatever it is. And that, of course, includes the positive things in our lives. Newton's disconnect with love, peace, grace, and wisdom brought him, mirrored into his life, that hate, self-disgust, ignorance. He imagined the universe laughing. That's why that, that Bible quote or that Bible um, uh, chapter came to him because he imagined the universe laughing at him. Because in a way, he was laughing at himself, at his disgust, at his what he believed was a disgusting life. And mocking him. He started mocking himself. So of course the universe is going to bring that mocking experience into its life because that's what the universe does. Oh, okay, you you wanna you wanna feel that way? Then I'll bring all the experiences in your life to let you feel that way until you tell me different. So he had this woe is me attitude, so then he received a woe is me experience. The universe does not laugh or mock, though it may seem that way, it just answers in kind. Because God, the divine presence divine intelligence, whatever you want to call it, has unconditional love. And sometimes, because of our beliefs, that unconditional love sucks. <laughs> so, he waited, like many of us do, till he was deep in the whatever, deep in the waters, both inwardly and outwardly. And then at that moment, then he, he reconnected reconnected to source. And in the midst of the storm, in, midst, in the midst of the chaos, both in, outwardly and inwardly, in the depths of his sorrow, the brink of death, actually, the physical brink of death, Newton began to reveal the divinity within him. Surviving the storm, his life was transformed, of course. Wouldn't that transform you? And he began a disciplined spiritual practice that led him at the age of 39, now he's 39 now, to become an ordained Christian minister. This is John Newton, became an ordained Christian minister. Quickly, he became disgusted, of course, um, with the slave trade and his role in it, um, which he said at one time in his journal, a business at which my heart now shudders, and he worked with others to abolish it as part of his divine calling, and it took a couple of decades, but um, finally in the late 1700s, it was abolished um, in that part of the world. Now for the Sunday service, evening services, Newton often composed a hymn every week, which helped develop the talk he was giving. 280 of them were collected. They were combined with 68 other hymns that people knew by Newton and a parishioner of his, William Cowper, and they were published as the Old Me 
hymns, old me hymns. I don't know where that comes from, why they call it the old me hymns, but the most famous of the old me hymns was originally titled Faith's Review and Expectation. Isn't that a great song title? Imagine that on the billboard, top ten. Number two, Faith's Review and Expectation. Silly name, at least for us. I'm sure there was kind of a religious connotation to that name. But this song was recorded by Diane Ross, Judy Collins, the Celtic women did a version of it, the three tenors did a version of it when they were touring those couple of years, Alan Jackson, if you're a country western fan, you can go listen to him uh, sing the song, Steven Tyler, if you're a hard rock fan, you can listen to his version, Whitney sang it, Elvis sang it, Aretha sang it, Mahalia of course sang it, it was heard, this song has been heard in many movies, um, as, as diverse as Tommy Boy, I'm sure you've all seen Tommy Boy, um, Silkwood, this song was in the movie Silkwood, and this song was also in what I consider the best Star Trek movie, uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And the song began with these words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Now, this is not a song you usually hear in our philosophy, but, but sometimes you do. I have spoken at places that sing Amazing Grace. Um, just like I was saying last week, I've spoken at places that sing the, uh, the musical version of the musical version of, of the Lord's Prayer. Imagine a musical of the Lord's Prayer. Um, it is sung sometimes. Um, not usually as a congregational song, sometimes as a solo. I have heard this song sung. Now, a lot of times in, in the New Thought Philosophy type places, um, they change the word wretch. <laughs> wretch sounds very Christian, sounds very, um, you know, the, the idea that I'm a wretch doesn't seem very New Thoughtish. So they usually change it to a soul like me. So it's amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me because they don't want to empower that word wretch. I get it. Yet, let's step back and understand how Newton, Newton used that word, how John Newton, why he chose that word. See, he was acknowledging the facts of his journey, and he was avoiding the proverbial spiritual bypass by going ahead and calling it he acknowledged his surrender in this song to the divine by openly admitting the horrors of his beliefs and his actions. Now, we may not use the word wretch, whether we sing this song or not, or when we're talking, you know, in our self-talk or talking to another person about our lives. We may, not, we may not use the word wretch, but we use other words like it. We use other words that evoke that feeling in us. And that's important to know. We use words by unfortunate, unhappy, poor, despicable, loser, loafer, coward, failure, any of those woe is me kind of words that we use when we're talking about ourselves or with ourselves or describing ourselves. You might as well say, I am a wretch. Because you're saying the same thing. 
So let's not sugarcoat this. Let's rediscover the true meaning of the word and the song and what's going on here. Now, sometimes those moments come when we feel like lack and limitation are rampant in our lives. And we feel like um, time and hesitation is, is flowing against us. Or we feed on some sort of shame, blame, or guilt. There are times we have that. I get it. But we can use this song as an affirmation to reboot, to dig in and reboot. Like I was talking about last week with the Lord's Prayer, when we, when, we, um, when we use my translation and my interpretation of it, or something similar, there are other people who have who've done some, not quite as interesting, but um, <laughs> um, we can use that as an affirmation to reboot. And the same thing with this song. We can reveal, we can illuminate, we can illustrate, we can reveal the divinity in us by rebooting using this song, either as a song or as a, 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 a vocal affirmation versus a singing. This will allow the answers to rise up, the wisdom to come back. We can we cannot, we are turning away by, by saying, yeah, Whatever it was I was doing was wretched in some form or fashion. But now I'm turning away from it. That's what the song is saying. I'm turning away from that wretchedness. I'm turning away from that condition. I am not going to dwell on that in my mind anymore because I'm doing this now. I'm revealing the divinity in myself now. That's what I'm doing with this song, whether I sing it, whether I hum it even, or whether I say it. Then we're not only knowing the truth, we are living the truth of ourselves. And then also, when we see the hints in the moments that, that of the law's plan, sometimes, you know, because the law, the law decides on the how. We just decide on the what, you know? So you decide, I want this in my life, whatever it is, whether it's a physical object or, or some health issue or, or money or whatever it is. Um, you decide you want that to be revealed in your life, and you, de you declare that, and the uh, universe starts working on the how that's going to happen. That's not our problem, the how. The universe works on that. But what's great is when we know, oh, that's coming into alignment to what I'm declaring. Oh. Doctor showed. I don't even know that doctor. That doctor show up, or that medical practitioner, whether it's a Western medicine doctor or not, showed up, and and he or she's given me something different—an exercise, a, um, a pill, even whatever, a, a salve, whatever—to help my physical condition. I didn't know that person. Well, that's one of the ways the universe shows up. That's one of the ways the universe has the red flag going, okay, things are working. Stay with me. Stay with me. When we see that, when we sit in gratitude, that inspires us then to move forward, making the statements, making the declarations, and revealing our passions with the fire from our hearts and continuing that into our greatest good, whether it's relieving a physical pain, whether it's relieving this, that, or the other bringing the goodness into our life, whatever we decide 
to want to do. We can transform any chaotic fire, disease fire, disappointment, anger, hate, lack and limitation fire into the passionate flames of health, wealth, joy, creativity, and loving, kind relationships. So if we get into that moment when it's time to reboot, if we get into that moment when spiritual practice needs to step in and for some reason you, you can't get centered on it, yes, you can use that Lord's Prayer that I talked about last week, but here's another, here's another way to reboot, to regroup. Just sitting down and singing or saying to yourself, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. prosperous and happy and full of vibrancy and vitality. I 
ask you now to allow yourself to be amazed by your